Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you, team, for leading us in worship. Um, just a quick reminder after the service, uh, we're done. We have, uh, t- for th- with those who have certainly affirmed Covenant Community, we need you to certainly stay and affirm our budget for next year. You, it's been posted for a couple of weeks, so we assume if you had concerns, you would have brought it to us, so it should be fairly quickly. If you're not a member, you're welcome to stay, too. I think part of this is looking to what God's put on our heart for the next year, and so... Um, It's hard to always think about finances as being that, but certainly God empowers us to be able to do it, so I hope you will uh, stay afterwards and help us to ratify that part of it. I'm going to invite you to bow with me as we uh, step into the Word and just pray before we begin. Father, we do ask that you will help us to see you from your perspective, to help us get a, a greater sense of the magnitude and the majesty of who you are and allow that to reshape and to, re, well, just change the way our values are. We live in a world that is so distracting that we really need a foundation that will keep us anchored in the midst of all the clutter and the chaos and the storms of life. We ask that you give us wisdom to know the mind of Christ. We pray that we would know the power of your spirit, that we, he is not just an affectation of life, but that he is the one that energizes and is the catalyst for the love of Christ in us and through us. And as we consider the things that Jesus did with his disciples, I pray that we'd be able to see the connection to our own life, and we would ask that you would give us a courageous faith to be on mission with Jesus. We ask that you continue in these unsettled times to uh, keep our eyes uh, fixed through the lens of the gospel, and that through that we will understand your perfect will in everything. In the trials and hardships of life, we recognize your fingerprints on our life, that you will perfect our faith and strengthen us so that we will lack nothing, and that as a body of believers, you will continue to build into us this sense of every single part is necessary so that we become a unified body, not twisted around by the things of the world, but uh, that we would grow up into a mature man, that we would understand the unity of the body of Christ as the Spirit of God would create it. And that we, in that sense, would continue to live out the mission of the gospel in a lost world. And so we do, this morning, bow before you and ask your spirit to continue to be our teacher. We entrust our time to you and give you thanks in Christ's name. Amen. You know, I don't know if I ask you, if I ask you the question, what is something over the last year or two that was worth waiting for? Uh, I don't know what it would be. Uh, Because of where we're at in life, uh, one of the things that I always find kind of interesting is the new way that people have families. Uh, Back in our time, we didn't even have the technology to figure out exactly what we were getting, but now they have all these gender reveal parties. And uh, they're kind of fun, interesting. If you want a party, I don't know if the kid understands what's going on, but it's obviously not for them, but it's for the parents and everybody that they know. I was uh, looking at some of those things and all the creative ideas about how people discover whether they're having a boy or a girl and the many creative ideas about how to figure that out. So it's everything from hitting golf balls to having some kind of party uh, where they eat cake and all the rest of it. It's fascinating to me, never been invited to one, but you know, it's kind of the way it works. But the reason for it, obviously, is that they, it's something worth waiting for. And some people are kind of the people like, I could never wait till the baby was actually born because that'd drive me nuts. I have to get the room decorated, it all has to be color coordinated, it has to be all decorated perfectly for a boy or a girl. 
So they're just like anxious to figure out what the, the gender is of their baby. Uh, my kids haven't done that. As you know, we uh, had a baby uh, granddaughter back in October of last year, and our kids on Friday uh, had a baby boy that was at 635. His, uh, if, I, if I want to do the short version, they called him Oliver. Uh, my wife says, why don't you give him a full name because we gave our son two middle names. Uh, his is Ryan Kenneth David Little. They decided to give two middle names. They picked uh, Gabri's dad's name and my name. So that's kind of cool. Uh, so it's Oliver Martin Bradley Little. Kind of like, I don't know why they want a name after me, but you know, it's kind of the way it goes. But, so it's a really neat privilege. Uh, just for you statistic people, um, eight pounds, one ounces, 21 and a half inches long. My one brother, when he found out, said, oh, that's a twist to things. It, unless you're 50 and older, you won't get that. But anyway, Oliver Twist, all that kind of stuff. Uh, my other brother said he looks like a golfer already, so that's a good thing. We need more golfers in the family, that's for sure. But, it, you know, it's been something we've long waited for, and it's worth waiting for it. And I don't know what that means for you in terms of life and what things you look forward to and they're worth waiting for. But the text that we want to look at today is really about something that Israel had been waiting for for a long time, and yet the way it's going to come is they're not going to recognize it. And that is they've been looking for the kingdom of God. They've been looking for the kingdom from heaven, the Messiah that would come in their mind and free them from Rome's rule and establish the kingdom of David the messianic kingdom that Jesus would come and rule, uh, their chosen one that God had anointed for them. And they've been longing to see this. You'll see this in the, in the biblical scriptures when uh, Gabriel came to Mary and said, listen, the time's now. What Israel's been looking for, you're going to carry the Christ child. And so it, it would be a shocking thing for her to say, wow, we've been looking for this and you're actually choosing me to be involved in this process. What an overwhelming reality. How exciting and terrifying all at the same time. And you'll see this all the way through when they took Jesus to the temple. He had Simeon and Anna there. And Simeon had been promised by the Spirit of God that he would see the Lord's chosen one before he died. And so he, it was something worth waiting for. I mean, it was just it was constantly on his mind and something that he's going like, man, I get to see the Messiah. I get to see the chosen one. And finally, when Mary and Joseph show up, he takes the baby up in his arms and he goes, wow, I can die in peace because I've seen something that I've been longing for for days and years and months. One of the things that's difficult for us to do is sometimes find that hope in the midst of all the chaos that's going on. And I don't know what it is in your life that is worth waiting for, that you're looking forward to, but that's really the flavor of the text that we're looking at this morning in Mark chapter 4. In verse 21, it begins by saying this, and Jesus is in the midst of this parable. We just got through the, the section on the seeds and the soil. And he says this to his men, and he is talking to his few disciples. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed, and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them again, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, 
Even what he has will be taken away. One of the intriguing things is that Jesus came on the scene announcing that the kingdom of God was at hand. And for Israel, that probably meant a conquest. We're not sure. It meant a lot of different things. At that particular time, there were all kinds of messianic leaders trying to lead revolts against the Roman rule, tried to establish communities that would create their own sense of identity that would not be subject to the rule of, of the Roman Empire. All of them were failing, and Jesus often gets lumped into this, but when Jesus comes along, he starts off as being God's representative. It's not the way Israel would have expected it, but he is the representative. Jesus is announcing the kingdom of God is at hand. He does that early in Mark. Jesus is God's official representative. He has the authority to forgive sins. He has the one to do miracles. We've seen in his life that he is God in the flesh. We know this from the compilation and and the collection of scripture that identifies him as God become flesh and clothed himself with flesh and bones and dwelt among us. And so he speaks to us in a way that no other prophet, no other seer, no other individual can speak to the people of Israel. And we see this all the way through the New Testament. Jesus came to call sinners to repent and his primary mission to start with was to Israel. What is profoundly unique about it is that we have that summarized in Hebrews chapter 1 where it simply says, long ago at, time, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets. By these last days he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir over all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is the one who's standing in the midst of his disciples and lost humanity and Israel and he's speaking to his men about something that's, that they've long waited for for centuries as Israel. And these few men get a chance to see Jesus face to face and know that John, Jesus is initiating something that they may not all understand, but it's something absolutely profound and something that Israel's been waiting for for centuries. As you move through this particular text, we will discover that he's not only God's representative, but he is giving God's revelation. It starts small. Jesus starts his ministry by preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and he says, repent and believe in the gospel. I'm not sure that Israel expected it to come that way. I think they always saw themselves as God's chosen, the the, the ones that God was the apple of God's eye, and that if he was going to come, he would lead a revolt that would just push the Romans out of the way. In fact, even after the resurrection, the disciples came to Jesus saying, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel at this time? And Jesus says, hey, don't worry about it. This is not the time and the place, and that's not your primary concern. And so in the midst of all of this, he gives this revelation, and the parable of the seeds and the soils was really talking about the inauguration of this kingdom coming, but it was come at the preaching of a messenger who is a direct representative of God, the Godhead himself. And so as he steps into this, the message of the kingdom we discover from the soils and the seeds can be rejected. It's, it's a message that they have to receive, and it was related to the messenger. And if it doesn't, it has to start there because Israel is not prepared for God's kingdom to come the way they are. They're not spiritually ready. They're not spiritually in tune with everything that happens. And so the initial calling comes 
sort of in this hidden message that gets things started. Jesus had invited his disciples to follow him because he's going to make them fishers of men. I don't know if they were, you could call them the microwave generation or not, but I suspect most of them wanted God to just sort of crash the party and here's his rule. But he doesn't do that. He starts with the very people who thought they would come to rescue him by calling them to repentance. It's often strange that the very people who think the the apple of God's eye are the ones that have to start this process by repenting and believing in the gospel, getting themselves right with God. You know, it's, it's interesting to me that in our own context, there's a lot of expectations that we have for God. We have a lot of ideas of what we think he should be doing and how he should be working and what it would look like in our lives. We do that not only for our own lives, but we do it for others. If they're really spiritual, then they would expect God to be doing this through them. But God often works in very different ways than we do. His ways are not our ways. And so Israel is discovering that firsthand, that Jesus is going to come in as this messenger and revealing God's purpose, but it starts with their repentance. I think it's a pretty healthy thing that every day we get up, we need to make sure that the issue is not whether God is lined up with what I'm doing, but I'm lined up with what he's doing. Because there's way too often that even in Christian communities, we have demands and expectations of what we think God should be doing rather than are we realigned with God with what he's doing. It's amazing how many times I run into Christians who have it all figured out in what God's going to do, and it doesn't necessarily work out that way. In all of this, Jesus' point on this whole mission to inaugurate this coming kingdom that he declared But at the moment, it's an invisible kingdom. And the text tells us in very sort of almost oblique ways that this idea is a lamp is not brought to be put under a peck measure or under a bed. Is it not brought to be put on a lampstand? Now, it's a little confusing, but I want to propose to you some things that help understand the nature of the text. As I mentioned, Israel is looking for a real physical, political, ecclesiastical, moral, and social kingdom that's going to have occupy real space and time. That the temple would be the centerpiece of it and Israel would be surrounded by things that they would pull from the Old Testament and David's kingdom. But as they began to put this together, Jesus' announcement of this kingdom doesn't, isn't gonna match their expectations. And so why would God talk about, why would Jesus talk about it in these terms? Well, regardless of their expectations, the point is, is the lamp really represents, as I would understand it, the coming kingdom of God. It is something that is coming, and it is represented by this lamp. Now, when Jesus talks about this whole idea is that it's not hidden uh, under a basket or under, the very next line would seem to sort of change your mind about it, because he says, well, it's not hidden except for the purpose that it would be manifested. And it tells me, as I'm thinking through the text, that God is, and Jesus called it this, the mystery of the kingdom of God has been entrusted to his disciples. So God has hid it from Israel at this point. He hasn't put it on full display. He hasn't fulfilled all the promises. It is hidden in the sense that God has concealed the nature of it because God's going to work different in, in putting it together and establishing it than what the expectations of Israel would be. And so the lamp, rep- lamp represents the kingdom and the mysteries of the, of the kingdom, and it's hidden because God hasn't fully revealed it. 
And, and so it, in a sense, it is under a basket. It is, in a sense, behind a couch. It is not fully disclosed because it's not God's time to put it on display. He has inaugurated it with Jesus. And unless Israel responds to the messenger and the message that, that Christ is proclaiming, and we'll discover this if we're in, in foresight as we look at the unfolding of the Gospels and what happens, they end up rejecting Christ. And so the, the potential of the kingdom coming on full display gets sidelined. And we are told that it takes a different avenue. We have to remind ourselves that there's sort of a lot of ways you can deal with this particular tent text. The lamp is something that gives light. We're told in John chapter one that Jesus is the light of the world and when he came into the world, he was the light of men because he offered life. But when he came to his own, which would be to the Jews, they rejected it. They didn't receive him because their expectations of what this is to look like was very different than the way God was operating. And I can't emphasize enough that often our own demands and expectations of how we think God is going to work is often very different than the way that he actually operates. But it's because of that, when he hides this, the sun becomes the most important factor in this whole thing. That he inaugurates and proclaims the gospel. He is the light of the world. John 1, 9 through 13. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That message still continues. We might see Jesus' ministry to Israel somewhat differently than what happens after the death and burial and resurrection of Christ. But the same salient truth exists for today. That it's not whether we start a movement to try to push the kingdom of God into reality and to, to take over our physical environment. But the issue is, is that the message of the gospel of the kingdom is that for all who believe in Jesus, he will transfer us out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, and we have a new mode of existence living under the king. And the church of Jesus Christ is one that is to live under the authority of Christ and to be the presence of his kingdom work here on earth. It is one of the greatest privileges we could ever be given in terms of life. And yet sometimes we discover the very thing that Jesus said, the, laborers, the, the harvest is ready, but the laborers are few. There's all kinds of people that desperately need to know Christ. He doesn't invite us into his kingdom just so that we can enjoy the benefits of it. He, as we're going to see here, calls his disciple to teach and train them so that they can be on mission. And so as we, we discover this whole element of things, we're going to discover that there are certain contingencies that exist with Israel before the kingdom's going to come, and it begins with repent and believe in the gospel. And there's people today, if I can transfer that to a, great, a, a bigger New Testament framework, that will never see the kingdom of God. They will never see heaven because they won't respond to the messenger and the message of Jesus. That he's the doorway, he's the, the gatekeeper of the kingdom of God. And a person can be religious, they can have all kinds of traditions and practices, they can do all kinds of nice things and moral things and they can be generous to people and they can do all of that and still miss the kingdom of God. 
Because their expectations of what they think God should expect from people who will be in the kingdom of God is very different than the way God's operating. We've lost sight of the fact at times that it's by his grace that we are saved through faith. And it's not of ourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of our works or our performance. It is a gift from him directly to those who will believe in Jesus. And if you haven't done that this morning, whether you're here sitting here or on live stream, I want to encourage you to consider that the reality of who Christ is, is and how you think about him is the most important thing that you could think about this morning. Because he's the messenger, he's the representative of God, he's the one that has the authority to forgive sins. And so the contingencies for Israel are really things that are contingencies to us, but Jesus begins to unveil the nature of the kingdom by preaching the gospel and then coming to these men. But he, as he talks about this, he's saying, listen, what has once been hidden and a mystery, God is now unveiling and revealing it, but he's doing it sort of in stages. It begins with Jesus and it's going to flourish from there, and we'll see that in further parables as we go through this book. But what I find intriguing here is the responsibility of the disciples. I, I think it's fascinating that Jesus, as he's talking to them, uh, really comes around and he says in verse 23, if any man has ears to hear, let him hear. We've heard that before. It goes back to the original parable about the seeds and the soils and, and, and he's imploring people to listen because the condition of their heart will make it either something they're receptive to or that they will reject. And then he says this, and he was saying to them, take care what you listen to. Actually, I think the literal, the actual is take care to what I am telling you. Be careful to keep on listening to what I am saying. Think of it, the God of the universe takes human flesh, he's standing around ordinary broken human beings and he says, listen, I want you to listen to this. And in some respects, we have something even more profound than that. Not only have we received Christ, but we have his spirit dwelling in us. And literally, I think there's times that we need to sort of see the reality that Jesus comes to us and he says, listen, I, I want you to listen to this. And what we discover with the apostles and these disciples is that Jesus is going to recruit them and he's going to teach them and he's going to train them in such a way that they help carry out this mission to Israel. They're going to be his ambassadors, his representatives, and he's going to send them out with this incredible message, but he's, they're sending them out to people that have hearts that are like pathways, and their heart is rock. Others are going to have weeds and so many other distractions in life that they'll hear the message, but it'll never take real root in their life. And he's got others that uh, just have so many other things that they're worried and anxious about that It'll land in there and it seems like it's a good idea but I don't have time for it, I, it and it's just gonna get choked out by other stuff. But there are some who are gonna hear the message and they're gonna respond and you can tell the difference between that, that person and others because it's gonna bear fruit and produce life. Something is gonna change. And so as they move through this process, the responsibilities first and foremost to the disciples is say, hey listen, can you imagine being there? Jesus says, listen, I want you to pay attention to this. I want you to really listen to what I'm, what I'm saying and what I'm about to say because this is absolutely critical. And so they have this responsibility to pay attention, but they also have a responsibility, Jesus has a responsibility for them. 
There's three phrases here in the last part of this element of the text that may seem a little bit confusing. One is, pay attention to what I'm saying, to what you're hearing. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And then the final one is, and still more will be added to you. Now the problem is, is you connect these things to a lot of different elements that don't seem to be saying the same thing. For instance, when he says, pay attention in here, I believe that Jesus is imploring them to say, I want you to listen to what I'm teaching you, and I want you to pay attention to what I'm training you to do. Because that's what Jesus is going to do. Earlier on, he called some of them to say, I'm going to make you fishers of men. So it's not just about having the right truth and information, but I want you to have the right kind of life. The right truth that doesn't translate into the right life is kind of defective. It's kind of like seed that doesn't flourish. And Jesus isn't just doing this to have a nice campfire and have a really good feeling of holy huddle and let's sing kumbaya or whatever it happens to be. By the way, I think that's one of the great challenges of the church today is that Jesus didn't save us just to have a nice campfire so we can feel good about life. In fact, one of the greatest challenges of the church is that some churches get this thing in their mind that they're supposed to hide. They're a lamp to the world that's supposed to hide because we don't want to get tainted or affected by the things of the world. You get individual believers who do that, saying, hey, I'm a Christian, but I'm going to stay away from the world as much as possible. We're going to withdraw from it and isolate ourselves as much as possible from the world because it's an ugly place. And I don't like their morality, and I think it's evil, and I think there's all kinds of things. And I want you to notice that that was not Jesus' intent here. The kingdom of God was never to be a permanent hiding place for anybody. In fact, Jesus comes to put it on display, but it begins in a way that Israel didn't expect it, and it starts with individuals changing their life by repenting and believing in who he is. And I think the clarion call that Jesus is going to have for his disciples in reaching Israel is the same clarion call that he does for believers today. That the goal of being the church and believing in Jesus and being born again, to be given the right to become a child of God, to be forgiven your sins and removed from the judgment of God and given the righteousness of Christ and being adopted into his family, wasn't to say, all right, now it's time to hide from the world that we need to isolate ourselves. But the call of Jesus is to put the, the, the kingdom of God through his chosen people on display to rescue broken and lost human beings. And I know that in the chaos and the clutter and the destructions and the pressure and the tension and the anxiety of life, it's really easy to treat my, my, my faith as a security blanket and I want to avoid the world as much as possible. And I think Jesus made it really clear that we're to be in the world, but not of the world. And so he is, in a sense, saying the same thing to these men. I'm going to teach you and train you, but the idea of their responsibility is with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Now, the confusing thing about this statement is the, the literal language of this goes back to a passage like Matthew 7, 2. saw several commentaries that it's an automatic reference because the language is the same, but in Matthew 7, 2, 
is the statement of the ideas, don't judge lest you be judged, for the measure that you measure it out to other people will be the way that it's measured back to you. And they often say, well, this is final judgment, which I think is completely wrong in terms of the nature of the text and the context. And they use it to say, well, maybe what Jesus is saying is, I'm teaching you things, you need to listen to it, and if you don't pay attention to this, then there's going to be a judgment in your life because you have not paid attention and lived out what I'm teaching you. Well, that's a possible way to look at it. And it's not unreasonable in terms of the language of the text. But I think there's a, another way to look at this because there's three statements there. Pay attention to what I'm listening to. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. But then he finishes with this statement that even more will be added to you. So I believe he's trying to make positive statements, not negative threats. And so the idea here is, listen, pay attention to what I'm teaching and training you to do. And this idea of with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. I think a better text than Matthew 7 would be Matthew 25. Listen to the language of what's here, and then I'll explain what I think the idea of measure is. But the master said to him, and this is the parable of the talents, where the master goes away, he entrusts several of his servants with different amounts of money and talents, and then he comes back and he asks an accounting for them. And the one who got five went out and made five, the one who was three went out and made three, and so it continues. The master answered the one slave who was given one talent, you wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown. Interesting language in light of the parables that we just did. And I, uh, and I gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents, for to everyone who has more will be given, and he who has an abundance, or, and he will have an abundance, but for the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And I believe what Jesus is saying is, I'm going to entrust you with the message of the kingdom. I'm giving you some resource. I'm giving you that which I want you to be responsible for, and I'm counting on you to help carry out this mission. It's like the master who gives the talents, the resource information and truth that others don't have that he wants them to invest in and to carry out. And all of them do it. They take those resources, the things that's measured to them, they were all measured and given different amounts of money. And so God isn't going to hold one person accountable for the same kinds of things that he gives to a different servant. But they're all, it all belongs to the master. And so their responsibility in the sense that what's been measured to them is is that they need to use that for, to serve Christ and his mission. And while this particular text has this sense that, hey, for those people who decide they're going to hide things and bury things and not take the risk of stepping out and investing it, what he has he's going to take away because he's proved unfaithful. And in this text it's pretty severe. You're a wicked and evil slave because I have entrusted you with my things and you didn't even bother putting it in the bank to get me interest. Now Jesus doesn't go there in this particular text and he says, listen, whatever, with, what, with the measure you use, it'll be measured. I've entrusted something to you, this is what I've entrusted and as you use this and measure it, it'll be measured back. In other words, Jesus says, if you're faithful in little things, I'm going to entrust you with more. 
I think if I was translating that into our times, the issue would be, hey, listen, if you take your faith and you hide it, and you're not on mission with Jesus to carry it out, then he's not going to give you any more opportunities. He'll give it to someone who's going to be faithful. And so the danger is you'll run into Christians who's like, oh, I've never shared my faith with anybody. I mean, they don't brag about it. It's kind of a struggle because we deal with our brokenness and our introvertedness and those things, and the idea of sharing the gospel with someone is terrifying and can't figure it out, and I'm filled with anxieties and distractions, and I either keep my life so busy I'm not connected with anyone. But what Jesus is trying to impress upon his disciples is, listen, pay attention to me. This is the most critical mission and movement in all of time and eternity, and I'm trusting you with this. You're my representatives. And so with, the, the, with what I'm entrusting and measuring to you, I want you to be faithful with it. And as you're faithful with it, my promise is you're going to be given even more. Whether it's responsibilities or opportunities or whatever it happens to be, Jesus is trying to impress upon his men that he's calling them to do something, and that's to be, in our language, a disciple maker. And so the responsibility that he says is not only do I want you to be responsible for what I'm measuring and entrusting out to you, but I want you to clearly see the opportunity that I will entrust more to you and give you more opportunities and I will reward you for your faithfulness in whatever way that that looks like. Pay attention, be faithful, I will continue to bless or multiply or give you more opportunities. The reason that's so much on my heart is because that's kind of where we're at right now. We have talked about our vision here at Oak Grove Church is that every person can be a disciple maker as an outpouring of being a follower of Christ. I may look at my own life and I go, I don't think I can do that. Well, maybe you need more time to build and mature and to deepen your faith with Christ because this isn't about my talents, it's about my faith and conviction about what Jesus is doing. And as we consider that, there are some core things that we have tried to advocate. We've tried to advocate that we want to be gospel-centered. The reason we want to be gospel-centered is that because once we step out from behind the lens of the gospel, we can turn into an ugly mess really quickly. Because we all, I bet you if I went around here and took a vote, every one of us have certain issues that we would love to hobby horse. We've got certain things that bother us and it's a concern for us and that we think are really important. And so if we have a church of 300 people, I bet you I could find 300 different issues that people think are important. But the issue is, is that the mission of the gospel has to stay central. Because I believe it's very easy for a church to get divided and disintegrate quickly once we get outside of the idea of the gospel being the driving force of why we exist and why we're, why we're here. We want to be biblically focused. We want to make sure that the scriptures are the things that become the basis for our decisions and how we move forward. Sounds easy. But in our world, they're developing new ways to interpret the Bible. There's new interpretations of things that we thought would have been a lock or not even remotely close to what we're talking about anymore. And so we believe, I believe certainly, I don't know if I want to 
convict others of the same thing at this point, but I believe in what we traditionally call a literal, historical, cultural, grammatical interpretation of the scriptures. We interpret it in many ways exactly what we would, the way we would interpret any piece of historical literature because the idea is, is what did the author really intend and what was he communicating? But there's lots of new ways that people are biblically focused that come up with very different conclusions than you and I would on certain things. Our heart is to make disciples. And I'd say it even this strongly. If you don't want to be a follower, an active follower of Jesus that wants to not only follow him wherever he wants to go, but Jesus told his disciples, hey, I want you to go and make disciples. And there's times you'll run into people that have no interest in making disciples, even though they're believers. Because they've got other concerns that are higher priority. But we also want a spirit energize life and ministry. This isn't moralism, it is the empowerment of the spirit of the living God that helps me get beyond my brokenness and my insecurities and my finite mindset to live by faith so that I can experience the power of Jesus first and foremost changing me into the image of Christ and then being able to extend his grace to others, whether it's believers or unbelievers, so that they might know the hope and the power of the gospel to rescue them. Any amens to that? And the, and the one conviction that I want to share with you is this, that we've shared with some, maybe not all, that as God continually impacts us, our spiritual health will be measured by our constant activity to reach beyond the walls of our building to actively fulfill the mission of the gospel in our community, in our country, in our world. I hope the impact that every one of us has outside of these walls outstrips the impact that we have inside these walls. Because that's what Jesus was saying to his men. Israel is lost. They are broken. They need to get back in line spiritually with their heavenly father and I'm calling you men into this thing to be on mission and I'll teach and train you and I'm gonna send you out because it's not I'm trying to build a holy huddle to build a new community inside the one that's there. I'm sent to, to the lost house of Israel. And I think God comes to us today and Christ whispers in our ear, I died for you, and I died for a lost world, and the mission of Christ is that I'm calling all of you, and in fact, I wish Jesus, well, I know he's here, but I wish he was here, you know what I mean. He'd stand here and he'd say, listen, he'd probably be down, standing on the floor because he doesn't need a pulpit. He says, listen, every one of you, I love you and I died for you and I want you to pay attention to this. I'm calling you into relationship with me, but I'm calling you to mission. I'm calling you because there's lost men and women and families and brokenness in this world that is destroying people. And the message of the gospel is to repent and realign your life with Jesus so that you can find healing and forgiveness and love and grace and hope and kindness and a new mode of existence that begins a journey of learning about Jesus and how I ought to live. 
Because it doesn't matter what goals and ventures and legacies you want to build in your own life. Jesus' legacy is to rescue sinful human beings so that they can be with him for eternity. We don't have a lot of flour and glitz and polished stuff here. But we want to be on task as raising up as many disciple makers as possible so that your impact at work and in your community and in your neighborhood and with your friends and in your sports clubs, that you speak the presence of the gospel of Jesus Christ so that our spiritual impact out there outstrips our impact here. That we keep raising up a generation after generation of disciple makers who will be committed to going out and saving the world. Will you entertain that possibility? Well, I know many of you are already on board. Some of you aren't sure just because it's terrifying. And some of us have built little walls around our life maybe so thick that it doesn't even sound like a good idea. And I'd like to leave the the pulpit today saying, this isn't what Brad's calling you to do. This is what Jesus is calling us to do. So I invite you to have this conversation with him, not me. Not that I won't talk about it. That's what we're here for. Because one of the things that I wait and look for with such eagerness is those grand privileges when Jesus gives me an individual who suddenly realizes the state of their sinfulness and their separation from God and have the privilege to give them the information so they can put faith and trust in Jesus. It's the greatest thrill of life. And then to walk with that person so that they can enjoy and understand what it means to learn how to live for Jesus and help impact other people's lives. It's an incredible adventure. But Jesus said, listen, pay attention, I'm speaking to you. Father, thank you.